0: Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been moving through the book of Corinthians, and we've seen Paul uh, addressing the church there, the issues that they're dealing with, the struggles that they're encountering, the relationships that they have uh, as a people. And thus far in the book, he's primarily dealt with the issue of unity. What does it look like to be a, a people that is unified, that's connected, that even though we may come from different backgrounds, even though different leaders may have led us to Christ, even though we have different things that we might highlight or emphasize uh, as our own personal preferences, unity is that which must drive us, must be the core priority for who we are as a church. And and he's addressed that uh, in order to really lay the foundation for where he's going to go with the remaining issues. Because as I mentioned when we first started this series, the church at Corinth had a lot of issues. They they had a lot of things that they were arguing over. Things some that were kind of strange, some that were uh, very significant, some that were uh, just confusing. They, they had a lot of issues, they, and they had written a letter to Paul asking him about some of these things, asking his responses, take his position on some of these issues, and he's responding to that. And so, in responding to that, he he first wants us to understand, wants them to understand that unity is the driving principle. And that's going to guide his responses to everything else that he deals with. But as he moves into chapter five, he picks up really the second issue. And that is sin in the church, sin in the midst of this congregation. Now, back in, uh, really, uh, my recollection is the 90s. It it may go back further than that. There's a saying that was, that was held, especially in basketball circles, um, not in our house. Um, in the 90s, it became real big in, uh, especially the, the supersonics. They, they even had a song that was written uh, that, that they put it. There's a YouTube video and everything of, of not in our house. And, and basically what it means is, is that... Um, this basketball court is ours. This is our house. And you're not going to come in here, and you're you're not going to win. You're not going to defeat us. You're not going to overcome us. You're not going to do whatever it is you think you're going to do, because this is our house. And we're going to take care of business in our house. Okay, And it's become a saying that, that's real popular in just about every sporting event now that, that takes place when you start talking about home field advantage, not in our house. We're going to take care of our home. We're going to take care of our field. We're going to take care of our court. Well, Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 5, would say something very similar, but he would he would put it, obviously, not in God's house. That in God's house, there are certain things that should not be present. There are certain things that should not be a part of the life of the believer. Certain expressions, certain attitudes, certain actions that should not be a part of who we are. And, and in particular, Paul is dealing with primarily with the issue of sexual immorality. And in in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he addresses this issue uh, fairly um, thoroughly uh, in its various aspects, its various expressions, calling on people to recognize the importance of our witness, the importance of um, how we communicate what the gospel accomplishes. Now, just uh, again as a reminder, the city of Corinth, was considered immoral even by Roman standards. Okay, a lot of times we think of Rome and you know, and and this kind of looseness with morality and those sorts of things, and and that's true empire wide. But Corinth, especially, was um driven by this. Uh, it, it's primary goddess was the goddess of, of love, <laughs> and so it was a primarily driven by that sort of big temple there, the Artemis and so forth, and a lot of activities, and and, uh, Romans even had a saying, you know, if if you were considered especially immoral, you were called a Corinthian, even if you'd never been to Corinth. This was how Rome viewed Corinth. So being a church in the midst of that, okay, in the midst of that environment, uh, had to be challenging. It had to be challenging especially when you're a brand new church. And a lot of the people who have, who have come to Christ are new believers who, man, that's all they've ever known. That's how they grew up. That's, that's their worldview. It's not just, it's not a question of them kind of saying, you know, this is something I want to pursue or this is something I like. It's their world. Sexual looseness and, and, and willingness to go any direction uh, was just how they lived life. And we live in a world that's becoming more and more like that today, you know. Um, there's a lot of similarities between Corinth and, and the world we live in. But Paul's not really concerned so much about the city of Corinth here, as we'll see. He's concerned about the church of Corinth. And and, and we need to understand that as we, we deal with topics, whatever they may be, you know, sexual realities or you know, obviously, what's on the mind of a lot of people is, is the whole abortion issue. As we deal with these sorts of issues, that Paul's instruction here in First Corinthians and God's expectation is that we keep our house in order. We keep the church in order, and that's kind of the mindset that that Paul t- tackles here. Uh, in, <coughs> excuse me, in this letter, and he begins by telling us that confronting sin is as big an issue as the sin itself. Beginning in the first couple of verses, it says, It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation the one who did this? He starts with, yeah, I didn't want to cough for right. um, He starts with this observation that in the letter he received that somebody has mentioned that there's a man who's sleeping with his father's wife. And he suggests in his response that it's almost expressed as almost a word of pride. He says, what's he say there? He says, How how arrogant are you? Okay. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? That that response seems to grow out of the fact that the letter almost took pride in this statement. Uh, it may be a case where you know the letter writer's like, We we were truly experienced experiencing freedom in Christ. As an example, da da da. da they reported this thing. And, and Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> wait, wait just a minute. Freedom in Christ does not mean freedom to do whatever you want to do. Okay, And we shouldn't be taking pride in our sinful acts. We shouldn't be looking at the sin that's taking place in our, in our midst and saying, whoo, aren't we enlightened? Aren't we great? Aren't we wonderful? Look at what we're open to. Look at what we're Uh, willing to tolerate. Look at what we're welcoming into our midst. Paul here, he says this is an act that even the Gentiles, even your normal everyday Roman who has no connection to Judaism, has no connection to Christianity, has no connection to God and his morality at all, even they would say this is wrong. And you as a church seem to be welcoming it. And his issue here in these verses at least is not so much the sin. The sin is something he's going to address here in a minute. His issue is that the church is not dealing with it. The church is not confronting it. The church is not correcting it. And and just think about that again. When you hear that phrase, the man is sleeping with is father's wife. We would look at that, and we would all, whoa, that's a pretty big one. Okay. And yet Paul counts their inability or their unwillingness to act as even a bigger deal. That's his word of correction here at starting. Now, we live in a culture, we live in a society where church disciplines become very passe, something you just don't do anymore. Um, I've participated in it a few times as a pastor over the years. There have just been times where we just had to confront some of the things that were going on. We had to, you know, do it from a biblical standpoint. Matthew 19, Jesus gives us the instructions as to exactly what needs to happen there. And every time we've confronted it, every time we've dealt with it, there has been... um, At the very least, there's been a great sense of discomfort. Just to to even raise the issue that we're going to bring the sin of a member of our church before the congregation and lay it out because they're unrepentant, because they haven't responded to the correction of the church leadership. And we're going to call them to account, and we're going to put their membership on line because of their failure to repent. Just to even mention that causes people to start to squirm. And there's different reasons for that. One of the reasons is we know we all sin. We know we all struggle. We know we all have faults and we all have things that are not pleasing to God in our life. Things that sometimes we continually return to. That we haven't had the victory over that we should have had. And so we feel hypocritical for calling people uh, to account for their sin in such a, especially public way. Uh, I think another reason that we're uncomfortable is the litigious nature of our culture. Uh, You do something like that, you call people out, you hold them accountable in some way, and you are, in our culture, especially asking for a lawsuit. You're asking for somebody to say, well, I'm going to sue your church for what they've done to me, what they've held me up to publicly. There's a sense of which we just don't like to punish people. I mean, our culture more and more has become less and less about correcting our children in many ways. And if we're not willing to correct our children, how much less are we willing to correct a fellow adult uh, who's doing some things? So there's lots of things that go into this. There's lots of things that that would cause us to be reserved to to be resistant against this sort of activity against church discipline as it were. but I think it's important that we that we recognize the significance of it. In verses 3-5, through Paul goes on to point out that church discipline is for the survival of the sinful person and the church. He says, Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus' hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul says if the church is going to survive, if that individual is going to have hope for the future, church discipline has to take place. It has to be something that is acknowledged. It has to be something that's carried out. But notice that the mindset that the heart here is not the not the destruction of that person, but the rescue of that person, and that's so important because there there are churches that quote take part in what we would call church discipline today. That are have no interest really in rescuing, helping that person at all. They simply are of the mindset. They're of the perspective that, um, you know. We just need to we just need to be as angry and as forceful and whatever towards sin as we can possibly be. You think of churches like Westboro that's so well known in our uh, news media and so forth for their for their signage and other what and other things at funerals and and things, you know, where they're they're going and they have these just hateful signs, hateful expressions and, and you talk to them and they're hateful people church discipline is not so that we can express our power or our righteousness or our goodness or or any of those things church discipline is for the rescue of that person when paul says here destruction of the flesh you need to understand and remember that paul by flesh paul doesn't mean the body okay that's not that's not how paul uses the term flesh very seldom does paul use the word flesh in connection to the body the flesh is what the flesh is, what we would call the sin nature, the sinful disposition. Okay, and he's saying you, you, you need to, to to hand this person over to Satan. And what that phrase simply means—it's a phrase that we find um, um, some synonyms to in the Old Testament. It's a phrase that you find elsewhere in Paul's letters. Basically, what that what that phrase means, what that communicates is. You need to turn them over to their sin. If they are committed to the sin to the point to where they're unrepentant, to where they're not uh, willing to respond to the correction of, you know, the elders, the, the leaders of the church, if they're of the mindset that they're, they're not willing to listen to the word of God and what the word of God has to say, then you need to communicate to them. You need to tell them. You need to You need to relate to them that, okay, your will be done. You want to live that life of sin? Go live that life of sin, but you're not going to do it here. And you're not part of this fellowship. You're not part of this family. You're not part of this connection. But again, that the purpose of that is, is to rescue them. And we seem to get a sense as you look at 1 and 2 Corinthians that this individual learned his lesson. He came to repentance. In Second. Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 13, Paul seems to allude to this very individual. And he seems to say in both those places, this guy has been repentant. And as one who is repentant, we welcome him back in. We, we praise the Lord for his change. We praise the Lord for his, his uh, understanding. Of his sin, we praise the Lord that this one who has been separated from us is now back with us. We're grateful for that. But to read those those words in Second Corinthians two and seven um, is encouraging, and I think I think it it tells the whole story of what Paul's trying to do here. He doesn't want to ruin this man. He wants to rescue this man. He wants to see this man learn from his mistakes and grow. We know, we know from from child rearing and so forth that the child who has no boundaries and who has no limits um, grows up lost, confused, not really knowing what to do, where to go, how to to do things. Now, again, I'm not advocating, um, you know, the harsh response that some parents will give to the kid. I'm not advocating um, a disciplinarian mindset that that's just always destructive and hurtful to that child destroying their 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 worth and their perspective. I'm advocating that as a church and as believers that we practice limits. we set barriers and we hold those barriers as significant for the protection of that child for the protection of, of that person that they'll become so that they understand responsibility, they understand their role, they understand their place, they understand right and wrong, they understand God, they understand themselves. And the same thing is true in the church. If we as a church simply go about ignoring sin that's evident, that's present, that that's, that's public, we do damage to the person that we're allowing to do that, and we do damage to ourselves as a church. We cannot be the congregation God has called us to be if we're not engaging sin in our midst. Now again, it's not done from a self-righteous attitude. It's not done from a I'm better than you attitude. It's not done from a I'm going to show you attitude. It's a heart. It's a spirit that cares. In in the times that uh, I've done it, I said I've, I've mentioned it, that we've done this a few times. Of the of the three occurrences that come to mind at the moment, where I've carried out church discipline as a pastor, two of those people were received back into the congregation. Realized where they had gone wrong, where they had wandered and and repented of their sins and and came back and and had healthy ministries, helpful ministries, meaningful ministries in the churches where they were. And in in each case, their response, their their mindset to that, they, they said to us was that it was the spirit in which we did the correction. We held to the truth of God's word. We held to the integrity of God's ways. But we did so with a true love and concern for them and who they were. That's what Paul is advocating here. We do what we do, Paul says, because God's word's clear about what's right and what's wrong, but also because we love that person. And we understand that God's word and God's laws and God's expectations are embedded in a concern for us. When you look through the Old Testament, when you look through the laws, when you look through the principles, every one of them is embedded in a thought, in an expression to rescue that person, to help that person live the best possible life. When we went through the Ten Commandments last year, when we we looked at each of those, we we talked about what? We talked about them being barriers that liberate. We talked about them being uh, criteria that God set forth to help us actually live the best possible life. Not as imposing uh, rules and so forth that, that are meant to destroy our fun. And so we live this life, we express these things in this way to, to communicate our love for others. And we do this because, as Paul says in verses 6 through 8, sin may stay hidden for a time, but it always has a thorough impact on the body of Christ. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's image here is taken from Passover. And a couple weeks ago, right before Easter, we, we did a Passover Seder here. We, we, we went through it. Remember, we had the kids run around and, and pull all the bread. Remember that? We had the bread set out around the room. We had the kids collect the bread. Because the first act of Passover, Passover was to get all of the leaven out of the house, to remove it. And the reason for that is is leaven. It's an ancient word for yeast. Okay, um, it, it's it's an image of what sin can do. Just a little bit of yeast will spread through the entire dough. Okay, you put it in just a, a portion. Okay, some some of you may have even you know your your yeast pots that you keep you know for your sourdough or whatever you know. So it's a little bit, and you take out a little bit when you're getting ready. Take your sourdough and you and you put it into the dough that you've mixed. And what that yeast spreads through the stuff that didn't have it before. And so that's a picture of what sin does. Sin just a little bit begins to spread. And, and I've seen this in congregations. I've, I've seen this in, in families. I've seen this in different institutions. You have a person who, who comes in and and, and they're they're gossiping. And they're 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 people who are constantly putting down other people, and pretty soon that attitude, that spirit begins to spread through the entire church. A church that used to be welcoming and loving, and 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 a people who love people suddenly becomes a congregation that's that's backbiting and attacking and tearing people down. It happens so quickly. And while Paul's talking about sexual immorality here. He'll go on to say in chapter 6 that that this applies to the words we speak. It applies to the attitude we have. It applies to to lies and gossip and other things as well. We need to take care of these expressions, these words that that do damage, that destroy what? Destroy the unity. That's Paul's heart here. The unity of the congregation. Bringing them together. Helping them to see the truth. That while... A sin may uh, seem like something we could push to the side, ignore, overlook. Eventually, it will have a thorough impact on who we are. Now, the last little thing that he says here in verses 9 through 13 may surprise some of you. Because I think it's something that we've kind of lost our way on, in terms of the church and who we are and, and the goals that we have. Paul says in verses 9-13 through 13 that sin inside the house of God takes priority over sin outside the house. He says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world for the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, would, uh, you would have to leave the world itself but actually I wrote you to not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive or a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it mine to judge others? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. We've become a, a culture in our church that's very comfortable about attacking the sin in our world. And we should point out sin when sin is present. But too often we've been more concerned about what the non-believer is doing out there than what the believers are doing here. Too often we've been too mindful about this and that. When Paul says elsewhere, we ought to expect that from non-believers. They don't know any better. They don't have the Holy Spirit to correct them, to comfort them, to to encourage them. That ought to be expected from them. Until someone comes to Christ, we're what? We're dead in our sin. Which means what? We're unaware of what we're doing or what we're expressing or what we're experiencing. We have no means of measuring it. But it's a lot easier to pick out, as Jesus said, the speck, the splinter in somebody else's eye than see the whole log in our own. It's a lot easier to to look at a sinful world and say, oh, look at the terrible things they do and the terrible things they're committing than to look at ourselves and say, oh, what a sinner am I? It's a lot easier to, to, to feel good about ourselves when we can say, well, at least I'm not at least I don't have that mindset or that perspective. Part of the purpose of church discipline is not simply to correct the person who sinned, it's to remind each of us that as believers, we've been called to a higher calling. We've been exposed to a higher responsibility. God has placed on us an expectation a different lifestyle, a different mindset, a different attitude. And, and notice the list here. As I said, he starts with sexual immorality, but where does it go? He talks about being greedy, being an idolater, being verbally abusive. How many of us are, are guilty of those? those sins that we don't classify as the big ones. It's important for the church to see ourselves through the lens of being the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Being a people who have been transformed by our connection to Him. Being a people who are driven by our love for Him. Why do we do the things we do, or why do we not do the things we we don't do? Hopefully, it's because we love God and we love people. Our passage this morning for for BBS from Isaiah sixty talks about that very highlight. We it's one of the things we emphasize with the kids this week. God has shown on us; He has revealed himself to us. He has communicated to us his goodness and his love and his glory and his grace. Therefore what? We need to shine on others. We need to reflect that love to others. That's who God has called us to be. Yes, we need to stand up to the wrongs in our society. We need to to deal with injustice and, and death and murder. We we need to to, to deal with all those things. It, We're not called to be silent. That's not what I'm advocating. That's not what Paul's advocating. He's not saying be disconnected from the world and be disinterested in what's going on. But he's saying just what Jesus said. Deal with the log in your own eye first. Then you'll what? See clearly to be able to deal with the speck in your neighbors. That's Jesus' instructions. Deal with our sin. Deal with our failures. Deal with our selfishness. Deal with our mindsets. Then we can deal with others. Why? Because we'll be working from the platform of grace. You see, when you see your own sin for what it is, is—a hateful, hurtful reality that expresses itself in our lives so often. Then you come to what? You come to understand just how amazing grace is. How wonderful God's love is. How transformative His work is in our lives. And you, in realizing that and seeing that, we become a, a person who, who is grateful for their deliverance. Not arrogant about it, not, Selfish about it, not look how great I am about it, but grateful for it. God has saved me. I didn't deserve it. I still don't deserve it. There's nothing I can do to deserve it or earn it. He saved me out of his love. And if he saved me, sinner such as I am, then my attitude toward others, my mindset toward others is what? It's not one of arrogance not one of self-righteousness. It's one of compassion. It's one of coming alongside and journeying with that person through their discovery of who God is and who God made them to be. That's what Paul would advocate. That's what Paul is calling us to. Take care of our house first. This morning, as we come to our time of invitation, the passage really hasn't been so much about coming to Christ as a non-believer. The passage has been about what? Believers who are not where they should be. So that's going to be the center of our invitation as well. That we spend some time this morning letting the Spirit speak to us, letting the Spirit reveal to us those things that are present in our life that should not be. Those things that are testimonies of our selfishness instead of testimonies of God's goodness. Those things that are expressions of, of our sinful nature that still wants to hold on, still wants to fight instead of expressions of our new nature that God has placed in us. It's a challenge this morning to to listen to what the Spirit has to say about those things and to be responsive, submissive to His direction. It's a challenge to get our house in order so that we can be the lighthouse that shines the love of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God to the community around us, to the people He's brought into our lives. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, and maybe part of your reservation has been that the Christians in your life have not shown you what it means to be a believer. And you look at what they have and you say, that's not what I want. They're no different than me. Well, in many ways that's true. We still deal with the sinful nature. We still have our flaws. We still have our sins. But there is one big difference. It's a difference that Paul illuminates and highlights in his book, and that is that we have the blood of Christ, as we sang about earlier, that washes us clean, that transforms our very hearts, and that is moving us in the direction of being who God called us to be, being the people God has made us. And if you're here this morning and you don't have the hope of salvation, you don't have Christ in your life, then we want to to make clear to you that, that, that there is hope in that, there is transformation in that, there is growth in that, there is life in Christ this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. God, I I repent of those times when I've been more about me than you. About those times when I've not held forth my responsibility. As pastor and even just as, as a believer, God. God, I pray that you would help me this morning to to face those things in my life that are not what they should be. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here today as well that you would call us to account for those actions, those attitudes that are present that should be. God, I pray for anyone here this morning who does not have a relationship with you. I pray that you would draw them in your grace, and they would respond in faith. I pray that you would move in our midst this morning. Help us to be responsive to your call, to the, the obedience you've called us to. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.